Section 12 of Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899 by Alfred Dreyfus. Translated from the French. Section 12, Devil's Island, April to November, 1897. I now began to receive again the originals of my wife's letters. In April I received but one letter from her, that of February 20th. I learned from it that only copies of my letters were sent to her. She wrote in this letter, I have had the joy of receiving another letter from you. I am still happy because of it, although it is but a copy. Your handwriting has always thrilled me. It seemed to me in that way I had something of you. A copy suppresses the delicate intimacy of a letter, and one loses that touch of personality which only the physical handiwork accompanying thought can give. The lack of this impression is one of the most painful of the many minor vexations I have had to endure. Lucy. In May I wrote to my wife, Il du Salut, May 4, 1897. I have received your letters of March with those of the family, and have read them with the same sorrowful emotion that all your letters cause me. I wrote to you some days ago while waiting for your dear letters, and told you that I did not wish to know or even try to understand why obloquy has been heaped upon me. But if, with the help of a pure conscience and the consciousness of duty done, I have been enabled to raise myself above suffering, it does not follow that my heart has not been deeply wounded. But I told you, too, that never has the temptation to yield to discouragement entered my soul, nor must it ever again enter the soul of any one of you. It is terrible to suffer thus, but there can be no consolation for any of us other than the discovery of the truth. However great may be your pain, do not forget that the sacred duty from which nothing must turn you is the re-establishment of our name in all its integrity in the eyes of all France. In times of happiness we do not begin to perceive the strength of the mighty tenderness which the deep recesses of the heart hold for those we love. We need misfortune and the sense of suffering endured by those for whom we would give our last drop of blood to learn the power of it. If you but knew how often in the moments of my anguish I have called to my help the thought of you and of our children to force me to live on. Alfred. A few extracts from my wife's letters received at this time. Paris, March 5, 1897. Before having a talk with you, I wish to await the arrival of the mail, but I cannot curb my impatience or restrain myself any longer. I need to comfort myself by coming to warm my heart at yours, to forget for a moment on your breast the maddening thought of this interminable separation. At least, when writing you, I have a few moments of illusion. My pen, my imagination, and the tension of my will transport me to your side, where I long to be, supporting, consoling, and reassuring you, bringing to you the unquenchable hope my heart holds and would infuse into yours. It is only a fugitive moment, 
but it gives me the happiness of being close to you, and I feel that I live again. Lucy. Paris, March 16, 1897. I came for a talk with you a few days ago when full of anxiety and waiting for news. Now I have the dear letters I so ardently desired. Ever since I have been saturating myself with your words, I never weary of rereading them. Again, as last month, I am deprived of the happiness of seeing your handwriting. Only a copy is given me. You can imagine how my heart bleeds at the loss of the sole comfort which until this summer had not been denied me. What a path of bitterness and grief we have to tread. The little things we must pass over in silence when we compare them to the greatness of our task. And yet, in sensitive natures, all wounds bleed. Since it must be, let us go forward. We are called upon to fulfill a sacred duty for the sake of our name and that of our children. Let us rise to the heights of our mission, not stoop down to these lesser miseries. Though broken by grief, at least, let us have the satisfaction of duty done. Let us stand fast ever in the purity of conscience, hoarding all our energy to bring about our rehabilitation. Lucy on the 6th of June, 1897, there was a night alarm which might have had dire consequences. The orders were such that, at the least sign on my part of an attempt to escape, or of any evidence of help from the outside, my life would be imperiled. The guard on duty was to prevent an abduction or escape by the most decisive means. It may be understood with such orders how dangerous for me would be any alarm given to my guards. These orders were shameful, for how could I be held responsible for attempts from the outside? If any had been made, I should necessarily have been utterly unaware of them. On that date, toward nine o'clock in the evening, a rocket was sent up from the Ile Royale, under pretense that a sailboat had been seen in the gulf formed by the Ile Saint-Joseph, and the Ile du Diable, the prison commandant gave orders to fire a blank cartridge and to have each man take up his fighting position. He came himself with a supplementary guard to reinforce the detachment at the Ile du Diable. While lying down in my hut, with the guard on duty, as was the custom each night, I was awakened by cannon shots, followed by rifle shots, and I saw my sentry on guard with his weapon drawn, looking at me with fixed attention. I asked, what is the matter? He made no answer, but I paid no attention to passing incidents, since my whole mind was taken up with the possessing idea of recovering my honor. I turned over on my bed. That, no doubt, was fortunate, for the orders to the guard were peremptory, and he probably would have fired at me if, surprised by the unwanted tumult, I had jumped from my bed. On the 10th of August, 1897, I wrote to my wife. I have just received your three letters of June and all the letters from the family, and I am answering them under the stress of the emotion, always aroused by so many sweet souvenirs and the tokens of so much suffering. When I have told you once more of my deep love for you and of my admiration for your noble character, I am going to open my soul to you and tell you of that one duty and right which you should renounce only with your life. This right 
this duty, as preemptory for my country's sake as for your own, is to strive that the light may shine full upon this horrible drama, to will, without weakness or boasting, but with indomitable energy, that from the name our children bear, this stain shall be effaced. And this end, Lucy, you should all pursue like patriots who, even though suffering martyrdom, never for an instant forget their duty to their country. And when the whole truth shall come out, as it must eventually, ah, well, if I am then no longer with you, you must cleanse my memory from this new outrage, so undeserved, so unjustifiable. Far above men, far above their passions, far above their errors, stands France. She will be my final judge. To be an honest man is not merely to be incapable of stealing. An honest man is one who can always see himself in that mirror that does not forget, that sees everything, that knows everything. He is one who has mirrored in his conscience the certainty of having always and everywhere done his duty. Then, dear and good Lucy, do your duty bravely, undeviatingly, as a good and valiant Frenchwoman who is suffering martyrdom, but who is resolved that the name she bears, the name that her children bear, shall be cleansed from this horrible stain. The day must break. The limitations of time should no longer mean anything to you. Indeed, I well know that the sentiments which animate me are common to us all, to your dear family as to my own. I cannot speak to you of the children. Besides, I know you too well to have a moment's doubt as to the manner in which you will bring them up. Never leave them. Be with them always, heart and soul. Listen to them always, however importunate may be their questions. As I have often told you, to educate children is not merely to provide for their material or even their intellectual life, but to assure them of the sympathy of their parents, to inspire them with confidence and the certainty that there is always one place where they can unburden their hearts and forget their pains and sorrows, trivial though these may oft-times appear to us. In these last lines I wish once more to express my deep love for you, for our dear children, for your dear parents, for you all, whom I love from the bottom of my heart, for all the friends whose thoughts for me I divine, whose unalterable devotion I know, and to say to you again and again, courage, courage, to tell you that nothing must shake your will, that high above my life hovers the one supreme care, the honor of my name, the name our children bear. I embrace you with the ardent fire that animates my soul and will be extinguished only with my life. Alfred. After the building of the outside palisade, my hut became utterly unfit for habitation. It was deadly. From that moment I had no air, no light, and during the dry season the heat was inexpressibly torrid and stifling. In the rainy season it was wretchedly damp. In this country, where humidity is the great scourge of Europeans, the lack of exercise, together with the pernicious influence of the climate, brought me so low that on the physician's advice they built me a new hut. Hence, during the month of August, 1897, 
when one of the palisades around my walk was taken down to be used in building the palisades of the new hut, I was again wholly shut up. On the 25th of August, 1897, I was taken to my new quarters on a little knoll between the dock and the former leper's camp. The lodging was divided into halves by a solid iron grating. I was on one side of it, the guard on duty on the other, so that he could never lose sight of me for an instant. Grated windows, too high to be reached, let in the light and a little air. Later on to the iron bars of the windows was added fine wire screen, which prevented proper ventilation. Then, to prevent me from ever approaching the window, the only place where I could breathe a little fresh air during these stifling days and nights of Guiana, they set up inside the hut, before each window, two panels that formed with it a triangle, with the windows as a base and the apex well within the cell. One of the panels was of sheet iron, the other a latticework of iron bars. The hut was surrounded by a wooden palisade over nine feet high, with pointed ends bristling sharply from a stone wall about seven feet high, so that, all without, the sea, as well as the island, was, of course, completely shut out from sight. In spite of this, the new hut, being higher and more spacious, was better than the old one. Moreover, on one side the palisade had been set further out, and there was but one palisade. But the dampness penetrated the walls, and very often during the heavy rains there were inches of water in the new quarters, and from the day of my occupancy vexations increased. The attitude of my jailers toward me varied with the changes of the situation in France, a situation of which I was in complete ignorance. New steps were taken to isolate me yet more, if such a thing were possible. More than ever I was obliged to maintain a haughty attitude to prevent advantage being taken of me. Snares were often laid, and the guards were directed to ask me insidious questions. In my nights of nervous irritation, when I was a prey to nightmare, the man on guard duty would draw near to my bed, trying to catch the words that escaped from my lips. During this period, prison commandant Daniel, instead of limiting himself to the strict duties of his office, exercised the low and contemptible trade of a spy. He evidently thought that in this way he could curry favor for himself with the administration. The following extracts from the general orders of transportation to the Ile du Diable were posted in my hut. Article 22. The transported convict will see to the cleanliness of his hut and the surrounding space allotted to him, and he will prepare his own food. Article 23. Regular rations are to be delivered to him, and he is authorized to augment these by receiving provisions and liquids in reasonable measure, as to which the prison administration shall be the judge. The different objects for the use of the transported convict shall be given to him only after minute examination, and according to his daily needs. Article 24. The convict shall hand to the chief guard all letters and papers written by him. Article 26. Requests or complaints which the transported convict may have to make can be received only by the chief guard. Article 27. During the day the doors of the hut shall be open, 
and until night the convict has the right to go about inside the space enclosed by the palisade. Any communication with the outside world is forbidden him. In case that, contrary to the disposition of Article 4, the eventualities of service should require the presence in the island of guards or convicts other than those belonging to the ordinary service, he is to be shut up in the hut until their departure. Article 28. During the night the place occupied by the convict shall be lighted inside and occupied as during the day by a guard. I have since learned that from this time on my guards also received the order to report every one of my gestures and even the changes of expression on my features. It may be imagined how these orders were executed. But what is graver still is that all these gestures and manifestations of my grief and sometimes of my impatience were interpreted by Danielle with contemptible, pernicious malice. With a mind as ill-balanced as it was full of vanity, this functionary attached immense importance to the least incidents, the slightest puff of smoke breaking the monotony of the sky at the horizon was to him a certain sign of a projected rescue, and was the excuse for more rigorous measures and for new precautions. That a guardianship so understood, with its hateful intensity naturally reflected in the attitude of the subordinates, was calculated to aggravate immensely my condition, can readily be appreciated. Moreover, I know of no torture more nerve-wracking and more insulting to the pride than that which I suffered during five years, to have two eyes full of enmity leveled at you day and night, every instant and under every condition, and never be able to escape or defy them. On the 4th of September, 1897, I wrote to my wife, I have just received your letters of July. You tell me again you are certain the full light of day is soon to shine. This certainty is also in my soul, inspired by the right that is every man's when he asks but one thing, the truth. As long as I have the strength to live, I shall continue to write to you, to inspire you with my indomitable spirit. Indeed, the last letters I wrote to you are, as it were, my mental will and testament. This wound indeed bleeds too hard sometimes, and the heart revolts. Worn out as I am, I often fall under these sledgehammer blows, and then I am only a poor human being, full of agony and suffering. But my spirit soon revives, quivering with pain, with energy, with implacable desire for the most precious thing in this world, our honor, the honor of our children, the honor of us all. And then I brace myself anew to address to the whole world the appeal of a man who asks nothing, wants nothing but justice. And then, too, I would enkindle in you all the ardent fire that burns in my soul. I live only by feverish will from day to day, proud when I have won through a long twenty-four hours. I am subjected to the stupid and useless lot of the man in the iron mask, because there is always the same afterthought lingering in the mind. I told you so frankly in one of my last letters. As for you, you must not pay any attention to what anyone says or to what anyone thinks. You must do your duty unflinchingly, 
and demand not less unflinchingly your right, the right of justice and truth. Yes, the light must shine out. To speak at length of myself, of all my little affairs, is useless. I do it sometimes in spite of myself, for the heart has irrepressible revolts. Do what I will. Bitterness mounts from my heart to my lips when I see everything thus misunderstood, everything that goes to make life noble and beautiful. And truly, were it a question of myself alone, long ago would I have gone to seek in the peace of the tomb forgetfulness of all that I have seen, of all that I have heard, of all that I live through each day. Each time I write to you, I can hardly lay down my pen, not that I have anything to tell you, but because I must leave you again for long days and live only in my thoughts of you. Alfred In the mail of July 1897, arriving on the 4th of September, was a letter, the following extract of which remained an enigma to me, the letter of the 1st of July to which it refers never having reached me. Paris, July 15, 1897. You must have had a better impression from the letter I wrote you on the 1st of July than from those which went before. I was less distressed, and the future at least appeared to me under less somber colors. We have made an immense step forward toward the truth. Unhappily, I can tell you no more. Lucy. In October came a letter of which the following is an extract. Paris, October 15, 1897. I am filled with anxiety at not having news from you. For nearly seven weeks there have come no letters. I hope it is only a delay, that I shall very soon receive a good mail. All my joy while waiting for something better is in reading the brave lines you send me, and praying that you may be given back to me, that I may live in deep happiness at your side and be comforted. Try not to think or to make your poor brain work. Do not wear yourself out in fruitless conjectures. Think only of the end. Give rest to your poor weary head. Lucy Then in November, Paris, September 1st, 1897. It is with a heart full of happiness that I write to confirm the news I gave you in my letters of last month. It is so good to be able to say that we see the clear path opening out before us. I can only press upon you to have confidence, not to grieve any more, and to be certain that we shall attain our end. Paris, September 25, 1897. I will add but one word to my long letters of this month. I am happy in the thought that they will inspire you with renewed hope and with the strength to await your rehabilitation. I cannot say more to you about it than I have done in my last letters. Lucy. Author's note. The letter of the 1st of September and that of the 25th were the only ones of this month which reached me. End of note. End of section 12.